Peace. Peace. The word is plastered all over cards right now, trees in some cases, decorations on front lawns or on houses. It's a word spoken into everyone's ears through the songs of the season as they come through the car radio or the speakers at the local mall. Peace. When I was growing up, there was a Christmas special. I don't know if you remember it or saw it. This is back in the, in the late 70s, I think. There was a Christmas special that featured a duet by one of the most famous crooners of years gone by, Bing Crosby. Remember Bing? And one of the most popular singers at that time, David Bowie, um, who you probably don't know or didn't know or didn't care to know. And together, and I, I still remember this, this odd pairing sang a hauntingly beautiful rendition of The Little Drummer Boy, interspersed with a new song called Peace on Earth. And if you, if you don't remember it, I, it, 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 I do. And it's become a holiday classic that I return to. I come back to again and again this season of the year. And, and that wasn't the first song. I mean, several popular recording artists have re reiterated this hope of peace on earth. Songs like Someday at Christmas by Stevie Wonder or My Grown-Up Christmas List, first recorded by Amy Grant, convey the longing for a different kind of world. So many people, secular or people of faith, speak of peace during this season. Peace right now is a word on all of our lips. And yet, in these days of wars and rumors of wars with increased, increased acts of terrorism, both abroad in Paris and as we've experienced much closer to home in San Bernardino, as they cast long shadows, are all our refrains of peace on earth nothing more than sentimental pie in the sky? As prejudice, frustration, hatred, hatred based upon one's skin color, one's politics, even gender, continues to divide us, what does peace look like in a world like ours? In the historical setting of the ancient Middle East, at a period of time and in a region of the world no less volatile or potentially unstable then as it is now, as the sages of old lived in days when there were wars and rumors of wars, prophets like Isaiah asked the same question. And so I invite you to turn to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11, in fact, in your pew Bible or the Bible that you brought with you, Isaiah chapter 11. And that's on page 481 for the Pew Bible. And let us hear God's answer. The Lord's vision for peace on earth. Again, from Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah writes, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. 
The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on, on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The prophet Isaiah, living in the 8th century before Christ, had a dream, a vision for peace. And if you keep those Bibles open, and you should, because I'm going to be pointing you back to it throughout this sermon, from the start, Isaiah, we know, is talking about a king. This is because when Isaiah speaks of Jesse, our mind should click into, if we know our Bibles, that Jesse was the father of King David. Do we remember King David's humble beginnings? And in case we've forgotten or need a little refresher, the prophet Samuel goes to visit Jesse and his family in order to anoint the future king of Israel, the man God had chosen to replace King Saul. Jesse, you remember, presents before Samuel all of his sons except David, the youngest, the shepherd boy. David, by his own father, was perceived to be so insignificant, no one had even thought to fetch him along with the others. But David was God's chosen king, the man after God's own heart, the ideal king who demonstrated such potential, who accomplished so much, and yet also represented the inevitable flaw in the human condition, the pride before God that comes before our eventual fall. For all his successes, for all his victories, for all his accolades, David, you remember, succumbed. He succumbed to the temptation of living for himself through lies, adultery, even murder. However, even with David's spotty track record, Throughout the scriptures after David, David still proved to be better than any of his descendants. Despite a few flashes of promise among them, and if you've ever gone into the historical books of the Old Testament, I'm talking Kings and Chronicles, you'll know this, you'll see this rhythm. Despite a few flashes of promise among them, the kings of Israel from Solomon to Zedekiah would be remembered as nothing more than ultimate disappointments, none of them living up to the expectations of Israel. You go through those historical books, and that was a good king, and that was a bad king. That was a bad king, that was a good king. And more often than not, they're bad. And the ones that are good are good because you can't get much worse. So the first part of what Isaiah is tapping into is something that the people of Israel knew well. That the great tree of Jesse... Jesse, which led to David, which led to Solomon, and so forth, has been reduced to a stump. A stump, as we all know, is a tree that has been cut down. The image is a fitting one, again, because it reflects what Israel has experienced. The house of David, the royal line of kings, has been brought to an end. The nation of Israel as a whole has been cut down to a mere stump, brought down by God's judgment. But thankfully, Isaiah's vision doesn't end here. 
No, if you have it there in front of you, Isaiah says, a shoot will grow out of the stump, not a branch from the tree, mind you. A shoot will grow out of the stump, a root from the stump what, when, that appeared to show that the tree was dead. Isaiah begins to craft a vision of hope, hope for life to come out of destruction, for resurrection to become the epilogue to death. A new ideal king, Isaiah writes, from the line of David will emerge. But, and don't miss this, he will not be a descendant of Solomon and the kings of Israel. No, Isaiah envisions. This is not part of the branch. This is a shoot that will spring up. God will go back to the origins of the dynasty and raise up a king from some other part of David's line. And in the same way Isaiah writes that David himself was not raised in a royal palace, but rather was perceived as inconsequential, an inconsequential shepherd boy, so the new David, Isaiah will write later, will be seemingly insignificant, an unexpected king from humble beginnings without any prestige and privilege. As an aside, very quickly, if we were to jump ahead to the New Testament, Luke supports this foretelling of Isaiah as he opens his gospel, if you remember it, and if you haven't, look at it later today. Luke opens his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus being traced not through Solomon and the succession of the kings of Israel, but through David's son, Nathan. And then if you follow the genealogy that Luke gives you, it's a progressive list of descendants who aren't even given a mention, let alone a chapter in the books of the Old Testament. Do you get what I'm saying to you? You wouldn't know they exist unless Luke told you. Now, up till now in this just brief start of chapter 11, I don't know if you're tracking with me, what Isaiah is outlining in terms of peace sounds a lot like a political solution. Reform, if you will, that comes by way of regime change. And that might sound pretty familiar to us. Reform, peace that comes by way of regime change. Because that's nothing all that new. I mean, right? I mean, regime, regime change is often our default answer in our quest for peace and prosperity. I mean, think about it. We often perceive the answer for a different, improved, and better future to be in the emergence and installation of new leadership. And this conviction is not just limited to countries with dictatorial rulers. Votes are often cast, right? Elections finally decided by the belief regime change from one political party to another or one leader to another will finally bring lasting peace and prosperity. Such belief often drives our economics as well, right? Both on the macro, the big picture, and on the micro scale. If a company's stock starts to decline, Boardroom adjustments are expected to turn things around, right? If an employee on a smaller level, if an employee or a manager or an executive consistently struggles to generate new clients and boost the bottom line, a personnel change is perceived as the solution to declining profits. Regime change. Regime change as the perceived means to peace, love, and happiness can affect every aspect of our lives. Think about your neighbors or perhaps even your relatives for a moment. Have you ever been tempted to wonder if a little regime change closer to home would solve your problems? Or at the very least, allow you to enjoy a more peaceful Christmas? Thankfully, we need to keep reading in Isaiah chapter 11 because we notice that Isaiah's vision very quickly, very abruptly shifts from politics, if you will, to creation. 
And we begin to see, and if you look at it, we begin to see that he is in fact painting a far more compelling picture of peace than just regime change. He gives us a glimpse in this just beautiful picture of what is known in Hebrew as shalom. You've probably heard that word before. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And shalom means so much more than peace as simply the absence of war or conflict. Shalom signifies peace as being the wholeness, the completeness of both prosperity and tranquility. The peace that shalom encompasses is about the blessings of well-being and harmony where all is right in the world and life is as it should be. And shalom, it can refer to peace between an individual or a group of individuals, but at its root, shalom aspires towards the healing, the welfare, the revitalization of everything. So here in Isaiah, what starts, we begin to see start to emerge in his vision, more than the absence of conflict, more than a moment to oneself, more than a change of leadership or government or members in our community, Isaiah now casts a vision of shalom that imagines the wholesale recreation of the world. His, if you look at it again, is a picture of a new heaven and a new earth. In a world where our only perceived path to peace has been the might of a sword and the strength of a shield, Isaiah says we will be given new tools to work with, the right tools for the job, the word of God, not on paper, but in the flesh. Not offered through verses or quotation, but literally before us speaking truth to power, bringing righteousness, establishing justice, protecting the weak and the vulnerable, and spurring, spurring faithfulness that will rally the nations. In a world where we believe everything we read on Facebook or hear in the news, where judgments are based on outward appearances, Isaiah foresees the institution of a different way of living together. Where one we will witness, one who will teach us not to judge solely by what our eyes or ears hear or see, but to look beyond the surface, to see and embrace things, people, not as they appear to be, but as they truly are for who they were created to be. In a world where wolves devour goats and leopards spit out straw to devour cattle, Isaiah foretells of a scenario where the hunter will lie down with the hunted, where the lion will lie down with the lamb, where no one shall hurt or destroy, but all nature, all nature will work together for the glory of the Lord. Now, in any other circumstances, in any other time, if someone were to, to, to give us this picture, we would be, would probably mock it. We'd roll our eyes. But what Isaiah is envisioning here is no sentimental greeting card piece of frolic, frolicking beasts through a green meadow. And that final image, and it's a really powerful one. I don't know if you missed it, but at the very end of our reading, go back and look at it. There's this final image that we're left with of a child and it's not this random image of a child absently sticking his tiny hand into the nest of a deadly serpent. I mean, that's a, a kind of a shocking picture. This, you know, toddler all of a sudden just sticks his hand into the nest of a deadly serpent. But it's not some random careless act. No, Isaiah leaves us. He completes his picture by giving us a picture of not just any royalty, 
but the Lord of all creation, the coming of Emmanuel, of God's presence with us and in us. It is the vision of shalom, embodied in a new Adam, as Paul will talk about it, a new king, the true son of man who is also the son of God, the one who comes, the one who can live among, resist, and even thrive and stick his hand into the viper's nest and ultimately conquer the greatest threat plaguing our world, sin, death, and the devil. Through the coming of Christ, Again, it's there, read it. Through the coming of Christ, as Isaiah declares, we will receive a new spirit, the true spirit of Christmas, the spirit of the Lord, a spirit of deep wisdom and profound understanding, a spirit of discerning and powerful counsel, a spirit of genuine knowledge rooted in the awe and worship of our creator. It's an incredible picture on a cosmic scale. It blows the doors on any kind of trite talk we have of peace. It is peace. It's peace in a way that we've never understood it, that we barely can grasp it even now. And so the question for me, when I read Isaiah's words, when I sit as you do in the midst of the Advent season is, how, how? in the midst of our hyper-contentious and deadlocked politics, how, in the wake of our busy, overscheduled, and stressed-out lives, how can we experience peace like this? How do I, do you, do we enter into the picture of shalom that Isaiah paints for us? And part of why we're here, part of why we have sermons and we get together to worship is because We believe that if we sit long enough, if we listen closely enough, if we discern carefully enough, the word of God makes it clear. And leapfrogging off of what Isaiah gives us and considering the scriptures as a whole, I want to share with you my understanding from scripture of how we experience this kind of peace. And I think the first place that we start is such peace as Isaiah talks about here begins with a right relationship with God. I've alluded to it if I've not said it already. Our world is a mess. We look, I'm no different, we look for faithfulness from others even as we make excuses for our own infidelities. I don't want to talk about my problems but I want to talk about your problems. We demand righteousness. I do it too. We demand righteousness of those who represent and serve us while we claim the exception and rationalize our own prejudices and discrimination. We long for justice in matters that concern our well-being. Justice is very personal in particular for me, myself, and I, and yet I turn a blind eye towards the inequalities all around us. The injustice of a world where two billion of its people try to live on less than a dollar a day. That statistic isn't changing, it's going up. Did you hear that? And I live in this same reality. I'm worried about how to make ends meet, and I am yet on the other side of over two billion people who try to live on less than a dollar a day. A dollar. There is no real peace in this world. And there will be no lasting peace in this world until we realize, individually and corporately, the peace that is needed is not just for me, it's not just for you, it's not even just for us. 
It's peace for all. It is the peace that is shalom. And that sort of peace is beyond us. We cannot get it. We cannot give it by ourselves. Peace like that isn't about solving a problem out there. Hear this. Peace like that is not about solving a problem out there. It's about addressing a crisis in here. In here. The greatest barrier to peace is the problem of the human heart. Nothing we do to change our circumstances, the leadership in our government, our economics, our marital status, our social life, none of it will bring the peace we all, all so badly need. God is the only one who can reconcile this mess, this chaos that begins in me. God is the only one who can bring peace because only our creator can give us the heart transplant we so desperately need. And Isaiah wants you to understand, and he's not alone, that this is what God offers us. Beloved, in just a a few days now, we will hear the voices of a heavenly choir of angels on that first Christmas night, offering not just to shepherds, but to us, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. God comes down. Jesus came into this world to live with us, to clean up, to take upon himself through the cross our mess. Jesus took all of our sin and shame. He put it to death, and he left our greatest fear, death, buried in the ground as he rose from the grave. Jesus literally is the bringer of this peace. Isaiah anticipates Jesus as the prince of peace. It is his nature. It is his passion. Jesus himself assures us of this when he tells us, my peace, my peace I leave you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled and do not be afraid. Peace in and through Christ is God's favor to us, God's favor toward us. But such favor, such a gift, is only ours if we receive it. And that's why peace begins with a right relationship with God. Number one, we must embrace God's offer of mercy and forgiveness. We must recognize Christ. We must receive Jesus. We must follow him. We must serve him to allow him to institute the only regime change that works, the regime change of our hearts. My friends, it bears asking in a moment like this at this first part of what it means to experience this peace that God offers. Have we received, have we recognized Christ for who he truly is? Have you received Jesus fully into your life, all of your life? Do you follow him? in all that you think, in all that you say, in all that you do, and do you seek to serve him? Do you do, as Paul says, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Peace begins with a right relationship with God, and yet, second, as we submit and yield to Christ, as we experience a foretaste of this peace, Jesus brings the shalom that will one day transform the whole of creation, that time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Peace begins with a right relationship with God, but second, peace brings a right relationship with oneself, 
Knowing who we are in Christ, knowing that God's grace is ours in Jesus, puts our hearts at ease. It provides what we like to call peace of mind. How many of us ask for, pray, seek peace of mind? As we fix our hearts and minds on the Lord, the one who loves and forgives us, the one who is trustworthy and able to meet all our needs, the one who will never leave us or forsake us, we experience calm. We receive courage. We have confidence. And suddenly, the obstacles and challenges of each day do not weigh us down with worry and stress. Discovering contentment and trusting in what we receive from the Lord, we refuse to get caught up in the busyness of trying to get, of trying to do, of trying to be more. We find ourselves able to resist the pressure and temptation to try and make a living because we believe our life Our destiny are secure in Christ. Beloved, the peace that Jesus gives is a deep, lasting peace. It is not, it is not the absence of trial or frustration. It is not the absence of frustration or trial. It is the peace of knowing the final outcome even in the midst of trial and frustration. Therefore, the peace that Jesus gives is not dependent upon our circumstances. Indeed, it is a peace that is often despite our circumstances. How is such peace cultivated? How do we allow this peace to develop a right relationship within ourselves? Beloved, I'm not saying anything that hasn't been said before. And sometimes I feel like you must go, my gosh, he just keeps repeating the same thing. And I am because that's what this book does. How is such peace cultivated? The more we read the Bible, the more we absorb the truths of God's word, the more we find wisdom, focus, and direction in the face of the decisions we have to make because we learn we have no need to fear the present or the future. The more we engage the Lord in conversation through spaces of prayer and reflection, the more we are able to avoid stumbling or being stumbled by what others say or do. The more we face each day as an act of worship, resting the full weight of our lives upon God's unconditional love and unlimited power, the more we live generously and are compassionate towards others, the more we realize, get this, not only how God is blessing others through us, but we realize how truly blessed and provided for we are by God. My friends, if you believe that you have peace with God and yet you're not experiencing that peace in a right relationship with yourself, can it be that you're not in the word? Can it be, for all the reasons we have, that you're not conversing regularly with the one who is your peace? Can it be that you are continuing still to fragment and segment your life into a space of worship on a Sunday or a Bible study you go to rather than seeing your whole life as an act of worship in which in engaging that worship by living generously and being compassionate, once again, you can not only experience God blessing others through you, but you will come to the profound realization of how blessed and truly provided for you are. 
peace begins with a right relationship with God, but peace brings a right relationship with oneself. And as you get caught at the tail end of that, thirdly, peace leads to a right relationship with others. As we know the peace of God filling our heart and mind, as we receive and experience God's gift of peace, the light of Christ will shine through us. You don't have to turn it on. (laughs) You don't have to turn it on. There's no batteries required, no switch you have to install. When you experience the peace of God filling your heart and mind, truly experience and receive it, the light will shine through you. The light of Christ will shine through you, and we become conduits sharing God's peace with others. The vertical directly impacts the horizontal. Jesus comes down to make peace, to break down the barrier between us and God. Jesus gives us peace in order to break down the barriers between us as human beings in a divided world. There are so many boundaries, cultural, racial, social, economic, generational boundaries, and those boundaries that once separated us from each other are bridged through our common dependency and faith upon Christ. You look around and you say, what do I have in common with people who are culturally, socially, economically, generationally, ethnically different than me? You have, as we all do, the same thing in common. We all have a common need for the Savior that is Jesus Christ, and we all commonly depend on that. That is why this sacrament is a centerpiece of our faith. That is why we come back to it again and again, because we forget. We see the differences. We see the divide and the table, the sacrament. Jesus reminds us, this is what brings us together. This is what holds us together. This is what makes peace, not only between us and God, but between each other. Bridges. Bridges of understanding. Bridges of friendship. Bridges of cooperation are built as we allow ourselves in Jesus to become family. That's why I said what I said earlier, and I I didn't think of it when I wrote this sermon. And again, I'm not critiquing the Catholic Church, but to have a moment in a service where you're going to share the peace of Christ, and it's just this pro forma, you say your line, I say my line, that's not peace. Peace be with you and also with you. Can I move on now? Peace is actually looking you in the eye, wanting to know your name wanting to hear about your life, wanting, willing to cry with you, to laugh with you, to hold on to you. If you feel like you can't stand or sit by yourself to tell you you're not alone. And that's why we have that moment in our service. And that's why I love the fact that we don't just treat it as something to check off. But in fact, I have to pull you back from it. Because that suggests we're getting a taste of what this piece is that Isaiah is talking about. You see, the Holy Spirit brings us unity. The scriptures are clear about that. The sacrament brings us unity. The Spirit through the sacrament brings us unity. But we are to do our part. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 4. He says specifically, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And that means in our homes, at school, when we go to work, When we're out in the neighborhood, we are to make every effort to work hard at extending and promoting peace between each other through acts of love and acceptance. Love and acceptance, forgiveness and charity by considering the needs and feelings of others rather than thinking only of our own needs and feelings. 
And again, those final words right there are not my words, they're his words. You see, that kind of effort is the one people notice and remember. When we consider the needs and feelings of others over and above our own, when we practice love and acceptance, when we offer forgiveness and charity, when we seek to serve each other, people notice and remember. It's that kind of testimony that's less about words and more about actions. That's the kind that lingers and becomes a legacy of changing lives. We become witnesses of the gospel by being a calm, steady, secure, and non-anxious presence in an otherwise chaotic, stormy, unstable, and dark world. Back to our 50th anniversary, I said that's one of our goals, become witnesses, and we become witnesses by allowing the peace of God to transform us. And the second goal was for our homes to become embassies of the kingdom of heaven. And beloved, our homes become embassies of the kingdom when we stop treating the world around us like a battlefield we must fight upon and view it as a mission field in which we get to serve. People get wounded on battlefields. People get saved on mission fields. Do you look at the world around you and see it as a battlefield or do you see it as a mission field? I'm here to tell you today, Jesus sees it as a mission field, not a battlefield. And your home will be a sanctuary for you if you perceive it as a battlefield, but it will become an embassy of the kingdom of heaven if you perceive it as a mission field. An opportunity for God to save people through your hospitality, through your generosity. We are, as we learned in the Sermon on the Mount, to be salt and light. Beloved, as followers of Jesus, it's one of the things people remember most about that sermon series. At this time of year, let alone any other, are you sprinkling and twinkling? We sing. We talk of peace at Christmas time. It's an interesting thing. We sing and talk of peace at Christmas time, but the desire for peace is universal, it's timeless. And Isaiah here in chapter 11, and he will go on. There's so many more chapters to come. He anticipates, and the four gospels declare, peace is ours. Not by a removal or an absence, but through a coming down of the world being totally immersed in the knowledge of God. And this knowledge comes not from afar, but in the flesh. Such knowledge transcends mere information. This peace that passes all understanding is experienced, Isaiah declares, through the intimacy of presence, of relationship, of Emmanuel, God with us. This Advent season, if our hearts and minds are not at peace, if you don't have stability and security in your soul about whatever you're facing, then maybe you need to receive the kind of peace Isaiah is talking about today. The Jesus who is born in Bethlehem is not just a figure of the past. He is also the Jesus still to come. This kind of peace which the world cannot give continues to come into this world one person at a time as we recognize and share Jesus as the Prince of Peace, the bringer of peace, the one who has made peace, the one who reconciles us to God, the one who is himself our peace. Yes, your life will be confusing. Yes, our life together will have its challenges. And yes, evil still desperately lingers in a world gradually being overtaken by the kingdom of God. But you can be at peace 
We can share this peace together in knowing the Lord will never turn his back on us. That God is with us, working in us and through us and among us. That God is for us in Jesus Christ. Amen.